Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Corey, I think we are finally ready to take on a topic that we have procrastinated for a very long time. It is one of the most important subtopics under the broader topic of collapse, but we have recognized for a long time that there's just so much to it, and so we've pushed it off for a while, but it's finally time to get down to it. Yeah, that's right. I think we've felt pretty intimidated by the topic. Maybe it's because it's just so far outside of our sort of areas of expertise. We don't work in healthcare at all. And it's frankly a quite big, confusing, convoluted mess. So sorting through all that, I think we understood was going to take some work. And the truth is, we still have a lot to learn. Healthcare in general sustains a population. I think it is a huge sort of beacon or example of the health of a nation is how that nation helps its people to stay healthy. Healthcare all over the world is handled in different ways, some much more successfully than others. This episode and some of the other episodes that we'll be doing on healthcare are particularly focused on the United States and the way that healthcare is done here. And because it is such a big topic, we're going to be doing multiple episodes on it. One today, we'll do another next week, and there will no doubt be more conversations about this in the future. Yeah, anything that is not sustainable is something that will eventually collapse. And so there are a lot of different ways to look at this. I think today's conversation, we want to look at what is broken about the healthcare system? What aspects of it are not sustainable? Where do we see the problems? And that will lay a really good foundation for being able to discuss later how we are actually seeing it collapse. 
So like we've already mentioned, there is a lot to this. We try to become well-informed and do our research. So I say, Corey, let's go ahead and dive in. Perfect. And I think one last caveat to mention here is that we're likely going to miss things. Or, you know, if you are in the healthcare system and you know the ins and outs of all of this, no doubt we're going to come across as novices on the conversation. But at least know that we're admitting that up front. Everything we're going to touch on here is going to be pretty surface level and is meant to be more of a conversation about the status of the healthcare system. But with that, let's let's pick a few topics here and discuss. So the very first thing that I think is important to mention is that the U.S. spends more money on healthcare as a share of the economy than any other developed nation. There was an analysis done on OECD countries, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which has dozens of countries involved. This specific study picked 11 countries, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. So these are all countries, highly developed, first world countries you would expect to have stellar healthcare. Now, these are all wealthy nations. But when compared with those 11 nations, again, the US spends more on healthcare than any of them, yet has the lowest life expectancy. And by the way, it just came out that the U.S. life expectancy has decreased for the second year in a row, mainly due to COVID, but there's much more to that conversation that we'll have next week. We also have the highest suicide rates among those 11 nations. When it comes to all 36 of the OECD countries, the U.S. has the highest chronic disease burden, the highest obesity rate, which is actually two times higher than the average of those countries. Americans have fewer physician visits than peers in most countries. We use the most expensive technologies like MRIs. And overall, we just have the worst numbers for quality of healthcare and results from those healthcare visits. If you want some fun facts about the amount of money that the U.S. spends on healthcare, here's a few. So we spend $2.8 trillion annually on healthcare in the United States. If the healthcare system in the U.S. were to basically break off from the U.S. and become its own economy, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world. This is according to an article uh, by Vox. It would be bigger than the United Kingdom or France and only behind the United States, China, Japan, and Germany. That's incredible. So I've lived abroad in the past. I've lived elsewhere outside the United States. I was in Mexico, and I know that when I came back to the United States, I was grateful to once again receive the kind of medical care that we have here. But what you're saying, Corey, is that it's not just quality of care that we're looking at. When you're describing how broken things are in the United States, it's the fact that we're paying far more to get worse results than what's being achieved elsewhere for far less money. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. The overall condition of the average American's health is worse than that of these other OECD countries. And the quality of care that they're receiving when they need care is worse, even though we're spending so much more money on average. And there are a lot of reasons for why that is. There are a ton of inefficiencies in the US healthcare system. Here's here's a couple of ideas. For example, obviously, insurance is a huge one. You know, we're the only developed nation in the world with an employment-based insurance system. The only one. There is no other country that is developed that bases insurance availability on your employment status. That all started around World War II. It was never meant to be something that was a long-term policy or plan, but it, it helped during the war. It allowed employers to offer health insurance tax-free, but that quickly became a huge benefit to workers. 
and it meant that their money could go much further in getting medical help. They didn't have to pay taxes on it. The amount that they saw deducted from paychecks was much less than if they were paying the full premium themselves. What it does mean, though, is that the government is losing out on over a quarter trillion dollars every year in tax revenue. And in a lot of ways, that sounds great, right? Like, okay, we're, we're not half, the people aren't having to pay those taxes. It's a tax break. But unfortunately, what that means is that people who are receiving healthcare from their employer, they're subsidized by the people who are not, right? The taxpayers who are in lower paying jobs, jobs that might not have good benefits, essentially their taxes are going towards paying for the healthcare that we're receiving in an inadvertent or in an indirect manner. Just like with so many other things, it means that the wealthy are, are getting a break while the marginalized or the poor are the ones paying for it. And because of that sort of subsidy, it means that health insurance costs have gone up over time as well. The way we do our insurance stifles innovation. Insurance companies really only want to cover what is already known, what is well established. They don't want to risk on anything else. But that means that new innovations in whether it's technological advancements or just new ideas around how to treat things, they don't get taken advantage of and they don't get explored because insurance doesn't allow for it in most cases. Not only that, but when we're speaking of innovation outside of insurance, because there's so much money in the healthcare system, it doesn't pay to cure things like cancer because there's much more money to be had by continuing to treat it. So in that way, we're also stifling those types of innovations. And I think in a separate conversation once, Corey, I mentioned to you that my brother-in-law works at a like biotech company. He's a biomedical engineer. And at one point, he wrote up an entire proposal because he realized like, hey, we're using a certain type of vial, like a certain type of test tube for one thing. And we're using this different kind for this other thing. But we could streamline a lot and just have this one that works for both purposes and we could sell that instead. And he felt frustrated when they shut it down because they said, well, then we'll sell less. We'll make less money. Like we want people to have to buy a separate type for each of these different medical tests. Like, why would we want to make a, a better mousetrap, right? When we can make more money off of what we already have created. Yeah. I had forgotten about that example and it's the perfect example for what we're talking about here. As far as the healthcare system being all about making money and not about providing quality care, what you just provided an example of is a pretty textbook definition of inefficiency, but because the middleman is making more money in that inefficiency, it's never going to go away. You know, while we're talking about that, in your case, you're talking about a, a medical device provider pretty much, right? Someone who's selling medical products, but we were talking about insurance. There is this interesting comparison. A lot of people think that insurance companies just make huge profit margins and they kind of villainize the insurance companies. Obviously, the whole way that our insurance is set up is a freaking mess, right? It's done terribly. It discourages so many people from, from finding insurance, not only because of the cost of the premiums, but because of just the complexity and difficulties of finding a plan and finding a doctor in your network and all these different things. But the reality of insurance companies is that they themselves are not making huge margins. Yahoo Business did a study or an estimate here, and they found that the healthcare sector as a whole runs a 15.4% profit margin. So not insurance companies, but the entire healthcare industry. 
Health plans, however, so the insurance companies, have an average profit margin of 3.2%. So they're running pretty razor-thin margins. 3.2% is pretty thin margins for any business that you're running. But when you compare it to drug manufacturers, they have a profit margin of 21%. And these device companies that you were talking about, they have profit margins. It was somewhere, I think, between 13 and 15%. And on that, I would be interested to know how they calculate it. Because if you're considering wages, um, when you talk about the healthcare industry in general, and you look at how much physicians are paid, for example, you can see why there might be less of a, a profit margin on top if you're counting wages as an expense. Either way, it is interesting to hear that insurance plans aren't making near as much in terms of profit margins as some of these other parts of the industry. Yeah, great point. So when you talk about the wages of doctors and nurses and different healthcare staff, that falls under a different category that I haven't mentioned here for profit margins, which is just hospitals. So hospitals themselves also make pretty low margins at 3.7%. So that would be factored into a hospital's profit margin, but like an insurance company, I mean, they're still paying their insurance agents and their staff and all of those things. That is still included there. But when you consider that drug manufacturers are also including what they're paying all of their staff and the R&D teams and all of that, and they're still making 21% profit margins, that is incredibly high. And it goes to show that the premium that you pay, which oftentimes seems so incredibly high, what you're paying to your insurance companies, it's not that the insurance company is padding it with this huge profit margin. It's that they're forced to have these higher prices because of the complexity of the system that's serving you. So here's another interesting number. For every three doctors in the US, there are two administrative staff to handle the paperwork. And that's just handling the paperwork because the system is so complex. They have to figure out, you know, they've got, it's a fragmented system where because we're not in a single payer system, you've got all of these insurance companies with different providers. The anesthesiologist might be under one provider out of network. Meanwhile, the doctor and the nurse are in network and all of that paperwork, all of that complexity has to be handled and sorted out by somebody. And that's done through administrative staffing, you know, billing representatives, all that type of, of job. One third of all the money spent on healthcare in the US, that's nearly $800 billion a year, is wasted due to those and some other inefficiencies. Another source of those inefficiencies is care given that isn't needed. So this is just another example. For example, the overuse of antibiotics, which is something that we've talked about in a previous episode on antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Like it, The vulnerability is there because so much of this medication is being prescribed because doctors are paid to prescribe it. Not only is it dangerous potentially to patients, but it also it just creates a huge excess cost to the system, which then gets shared by everybody through their premiums that they pay to their health insurance providers. Yeah, to that point, just really quickly, when you talk about pharmaceutical companies paying doctors to prescribe certain medications, I do just want to say, like, I think there are so many great medical professionals out there. Sometimes when we say that, it makes it sound like doctors are all corrupt, and I don't think that's the case. But there has been a lot of research on it. There's an article that I found from just a few years ago. ProPublica did an analysis they matched doctors prescribing in Medicare's prescription drug program to the industry payments doctors received. And it, it turns out that drug and medical device companies, they have to report 
those payments annually through something called the Open Payments Program. They're made public on a government website. What they found is that more than 600,000 doctors receive payments annually. And this can come in a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's, you know, consulting or they pay them for promotional talks. They'll pay them in meals. But billions of dollars have been paid by pharmaceutical companies to doctors. And as they did research on this, they looked at 50 different drugs and found that for 32 of them, at least 10% of doctors prescribing the drug received payments tied to the drug from the company that made it. And they looked at it in a couple of different ways. They, they tried to determine if those who received payments prescribed more of a drug. And they also looked at whether those who prescribed a drug received higher payments than those who did not. And in both cases, they found that that is exactly what happens. For example, in, in one statement, it says, we found that on average, physicians who prescribed a drug received higher payments related to the drug that same year than those who didn't prescribe it. So again, I don't think it's like this huge conspiracy and I don't think there's, you know, that, that, that every doctor out there is taking all these payments. But it is concerning to think that when I go to the doctor, at least, a, you know, a somewhat significant portion of their motivation in prescribing a drug to me is a personal incentive instead of prescribing the medication that actually is going to be most effective. Yeah, perfect example. So that's one way in which our doctors are incentivized to possibly prescribe care, or in this case, a physical pharmaceutical, a product to a patient that may not be best for them. Beyond that, our healthcare system also pays doctors based on the amount of work they do, not based on the quality of the work they do. So if you're a doctor, you know, in most cases, your goal is to get through as many patients as you can, as quickly as you can, so that you can bill more, so that you can make more money. There have been a lot of arguments out there that doctors should be paid based on the quality of care, based on the outcomes of surgeries, based on the longevity of the solution and whether it actually fixed the problem or not. There should be metrics and sort of indicators that show whether or not a doctor is providing adequate care and that their status as a physician or their pay should be associated with them meeting those standards. There have been some tests done in that arena, and any time that those studies or tests are done, they have found that the number of people that have to return for care afterwards, whether because the surgery itself failed or was incomplete, those numbers all went way down. Not only does that improve the outcomes and the quality for people, but it also decreases the overall cost because I don't have to return because I don't have to get another surgery later to fix the issue that should have been fixed the first time. It's kind of like that trope about, you know, a mechanic who, while he's in there supposedly fixing your car, he's also cutting a brake line. So you get in an accident and have to come back or, what, or whatever it is, you know, not saying that doctors are doing that, but there are natural incentives right? That may be even working subconsciously that say, if this person comes back again, I will make more money. And so what is the incentive for me to fix that person permanently? And so this is true of so many things. Insurance companies are not incentivized to provide preventive care or preventative care because it costs them money, right? They have to pay out every time you go to the doctor. They don't want to pay for your expensive tests, to make sure that your heart is in good condition, even when you're not feeling symptoms, 
They don't want to pay for you to get the cancer screening because it would cost a lot now. But not only does that mean that there may be more costs later down the road when you get cancer or when you have a heart attack, but it also means that the overall state of the health of the people in a nation, in this nation, are worse off. The U.S. also tends to be very technology-based when it comes to our healthcare system. We focus much more on the fancy MRI machines, state-of-the-art equipment, which tend to be very expensive, and we focus much less on the basics of dieting, eating healthy, of exercise, of preventative care. And again, this has the same effect. We could be doing the cheap, easy, smart stuff by avoiding getting sick, and instead we don't do that and we do the really expensive stuff, which is, you know, get really pricey MRIs and, and other tests done and, and hospitals sort of push that. We are a level one trauma center with all of the billions of dollars worth of machinery. So you should come here and, and be a patient at our hospital. So I've just named a whole bunch of different things sort of all over the place, but they all result in one thing. And that is, according to this Vox article, it says, The net price of a heart attack in the United States, then, is more expensive because of the unit price of each service delivered, the more intense treatment, and the additional administrative costs of processing the ultimate insurance claim. So yeah, so much of what you described comes back to cost. That we're paying much more than what we should be for the quality of care that we're getting. And along those same lines... One area in which costs have gone up exponentially has been in med school, in, in getting a medical education. For example, one article states, over four years, which by the way, let me pause there and, and say that often becoming a medical professional takes longer than four years. For example, it takes somewhere between 11 to 15 years to train a physician if you're counting college, medical school, residency, and fellowship. But if we're just talking about four years of medical school, this says over four years, which includes class time, lab hours, and clinical experience, the median total cost of attendance was 255517 to $337,584 for the class of 2020. So when you're talking about somewhere between $255,000 and $337,000 over the course of four years, that is an extraordinary amount of money. If you look at how those costs have gone up over time, from 1981, in which the average tuition cost at a public U.S. medical school was $2,761. If it was private, it was just under $9,000. If you compare that, 1981, to 2002, in which the averages went up to 14.5,000 and 30.9,000, we're talking about a 528% increase or a 345% increase, depending on whether you're looking at public or private schools. And from 1998 to 2008, it increased by more than 50%. And again, that's just talking about medical school. That's just talking about those limited years if we look at something like residency, it depends a lot on what kind of a, a doctor you're trying to become. But when you look at all of the costs, you know, you, the, the residency program administrator salaries and the salaries to faculty to cover teaching time and the cost of, uh, you know, hospital call rooms, salaries and benefits, all of that. Here's how much it costs to, to train physicians. So I'll, I'll just grab a couple of examples. 
This says an obstetrician or psychiatrist, $1,316,917. A general surgeon, $1,500,333. A gastroenterologist or pulmonary critical care or general cardiologist, we're talking $1,683,749. If we're talking about like a neurosurgeon or an interventional cardiologist, that's over 1.8 million. And that's just to get them trained. And so you might think like, why, why are costs going up so much? And it makes it sound like these medical schools are just terrible and greedy. And I'm sure there's some of that. (laughs) But it turns out that for allopathic schools, it's just 10% or less that they're getting from tuition. And osteopathic schools, it's somewhere between 15 and 50% of revenue. These colleges, you know, they've they've got three income sources. They can either get it from tuition, from endowment, or from government funds. But there have been recent downturns in state economies. I mean, we've seen a lot of things happen in localized and even in more generalized economies over the last handful of years. That forces budget cuts. That means there can't be as big of a budget for state appropriations for medical education. You know, grants for research funding are decreasing. In a lot of ways, these medical schools feel like they have been forced to raise their tuition costs. And even then, it's not covering what they need it to. Yeah. So when you talk about all the money, all the investment that goes into training these doctors, the cost of their tuition, you know, what they're paying, the debts that they go into in order to become doctors, to a lesser extent as well, all healthcare professionals, nurses, they are expecting to make that back and much more, right? Doctors' salaries are incredibly high. Um, According to many sources, doctors' salaries account for about 8% of all U.S. healthcare costs. So all of that education, all those costs get factored into the end product that we pay or that into the premiums that we pay to insurance companies. And that factors into the the total cost of healthcare. I think the the most concerning about what you're talking about here is how fast those costs are increasing. When we talk about unsustainability, we've got all sorts of costs involved in healthcare, which are all seeming to increase, which is again, something that we'll talk about next episode. But the fact that the cost of educating, training, and getting new doctors on the job, and then paying those doctors so that they can make up for the debts that they paid to get the job are increasing, that's definitely concerning. One of the reasons doctors have to be paid so high is because we live in an extremely litigious society. Being a doctor is a high-risk profession in that In many cases, it's not a matter of if you'll get sued as a doctor, but when. And all of those malpractice suits, all of all of the suing that's happening also gets factored into the end costs that we pay as well. Now, in a lot of cases, doctors are being sued because they're making mistakes. Medical errors are actually a hugely underreported and under-scrutinized issue within the healthcare system. One article I read explained it like we have all these accidents and things that happen in everyday life. For example, a plane crash, which is not something that happens every day, right? But when it does, it's a huge deal. It's all over the news. All these people died. And yet they talk about the number of people that die in hospitals because of malpractice every year and how that number eclipses it. And it's never mentioned. So as an example, there have been multiple studies done on how many deaths are caused each year by medical errors in hospitals. And the range from all these different studies is pretty vast. But one of the newer studies that was done in 2013 says that it could be anywhere between 200 and 500,000 people per year. 
dying due to malpractice. They're saying that at the lower end, so about 200,000 people per year, that's the equivalent of 10 jumbo jets crashing each week, or the entire population of Birmingham, Alabama dying every year. And so when you think about not only the human toll of that, right, the, the number of deaths, but just the fact that obviously the quality of the care is not there. If people are dying to medical error like that, there's so many other cases where people aren't dying, but are suffering the consequences of those malpractices, that medical error. And obviously that creates a huge cost for everybody else in the system. Yeah. You know, my mother-in-law is a nurse and another family member of mine was about to have a medical procedure done. And I remember my mother-in-law went to the surgeon and started asking all these questions like, Hey, did you get a good sleep last night? And like, how's your marriage? And, and asking all these questions to try to figure out the state of mind that the surgeon was in because she had seen so many cases of mistakes being made. I think another flaw in the system is that, you know, doctors are incentivized based on the number of patients they have. So they're running from patient to patient to patient. And I know that when I go to the doctor, usually I wait in a waiting room for a long time. And when I finally get called in, I only get a couple of minutes with the doctor before they run out of the room to the next patient. And so there's this huge ratio of patients to doctors. And you've got to think that when doctors have such a high patient load, they're not giving as much quality as they could be. They're bound to be mistakes. And then you factor in on top of that, that at least early in their careers, a lot of medical professionals are forced to take really terrible shifts, right? Their schedules are all over the place. They're working through the night. They're working long hours. And of course, that's going to result in more human error. You know, it reminds me of a story that my wife told me once upon a time about when she was younger, she had to get her appendix taken out. And as they were wheeling her into the OR, one of the nurses stopped her and just to kind of go over some of the processes or whatever said, okay, so-and-so, here's what you can expect. But the name that they called her was the wrong name. And they're like, wait, 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 who did you just say? Because that's not me. And it turns out that they had the wrong chart in her bed, like in her file or whatever. They, they thought that she was somebody else. And I have no idea what procedure that person was expecting to be done. But just knowing that if they had not double-checked in that moment or had caught it, the way that they did, my wife could have had some weird procedure. She might not have a left arm today or something, you know. But that's the type of stuff that no doubt is happening time and time again all over the place. Stuff that is often not getting caught. And it can be a huge cause for unnecessary deaths. And if not deaths, then again, complications, litigations, and other things that are increasing costs and decreasing in efficiency. One last thing that I'll say here about the healthcare system, and it's something that's true of all things in collapse something that we've talked about recently, and it's that it's extremely unequal who is receiving the care. So 5% of people spend 50% of the medical care. Meanwhile, there are tens of millions of people who are going without any care at all. So the top spending half are spending an average of $40,000 per person per year, while the lowest spending half spends just $236 per person per year. So there's just this huge disparity, and that means there's a huge number of people out there who are basically receiving no care at all. Part of that is because it's so expensive, you know, they don't have access to it. But meanwhile, you've got this significantly small portion of people who are just receiving a massive amount of medical attention. And that isn't to say that only the wealthiest of people are the ones receiving the most care. It's not like the top 1% of wealth in the society is the ones that are spending 
all this money in medical care. In reality, most of those high spenders are elderly people that happen to have good insurance or on Medicare. You know, they might have really bad health. So we're spending most of our money on a pretty small subset of people to try and treat them. And these are people that are on a ton of medication through the end of their life, right? They're going to the ER frequently, time and time again. What it does suggest is that if we focused our efforts on that smaller population of people, we could potentially drive down overall healthcare costs. The problem is that our system incentivizes that sort of behavior, right? If you have a chronic patient who at 50 years old has diabetes and you know they're going to have another 20 years of coming into your hospital being prescribed your medication, that you'll be seeing them time and time again, it's kind of like your cash cow for your hospital, right? Or as a doctor. So that 50% of all that money that's being spent so inefficiently is in the pockets of somebody and that somebody doesn't really want the system to change because for them it's working great. And so it really comes down to this fact that our hospitals or our healthcare system is basically being run as a business and that those businesses are capitalizing on people's bad health and misfortune. The system simply doesn't incentivize people to get healthier. They don't, it doesn't want them to decrease the amount of money that's being spent on healthcare, right? It wants to see an increase. In any business, the goal is to drive demand. You know, if you're a store that's selling a good, it's a brick and mortar mom pa shop. Your hope is that demand for your product increases. And sort of when we talk about that invisible hand of capitalism, right, in the market, those invisible forces are going to push for continuing to drive demand, even if it's not like a conscious thought in any one person's mind to do it. That's what's going to happen in the market. And so that's what's happening now with healthcare. Yeah, and just quickly, I'll mention that like you did a great job there of calling out that there are those who want to keep it the way it is. But some of the problem that you mentioned goes back to innovation. I think about something that happened when my wife and I were in the hospital. She was about to give birth to one of our children, and we learned of a certain practice, just a small specific thing that research had shown could be done at the time of a baby's birth that would make it so the likelihood of the baby needing to stay for multiple days in the hospital would decrease significantly. And it was a nurse there at the hospital that was telling us about this. She said that when that research arrived at the hospital, the nurses started putting that into practice because they wanted to help people. And as they did it, it was having the result they expected. It was making it so that mothers and, and their newborn babies weren't having to spend so much time at the hospital. But the folks from the accounting department got really frustrated with them. And there was a lot of back and forth because it resulted in a big drop in revenue. You know, on the business side of it, they wanted people to have to stay multiple days in the hospital after the birth of their baby. And it wasn't that the staff wasn't trying to help. It was just because there were some on the administrative side that were trying to run it as a business and naturally they were trying to do it in a way that would make the most money. And I think what you're saying highlights a really important aspect of all this. And it's something that we've already alluded to and clarified a couple of times here. We're not stating that doctors or nurses or healthcare staff have desired to do something wrong, right? To simply make more money and put patients' lives at risk. Guessing that there are doctors out there like that. I think what we are saying is that the system, the way that it's all built, just incentivizes that behavior, whether subconsciously or consciously. It's not like all doctors are out there trying to make an extra buck and they're trying to put people's lives in danger to do it, but the system doesn't make it easy for them to act altruistically. In a lot of cases, a doctor might have to sacrifice some things, right? They might sacrifice income, um, maybe a promotion or like prestige in their role and their specialty at the hospital in order to do what's right for the patient. And for a lot, I'm guessing that's a very tough decision to make. 
we're also not trying to say that every administrator in a hospital has bad intentions either. You know, their job is to make sure that the hospital's finances are in order, make sure there's a profit being made, make sure the bills can be paid. They're basically a cog in the wheel the same way that any of us who work a job in a, in the capitalist system are. It's just the way it works. So we'll talk more about that next week, I think, um, as far as like administration in hospitals and a lot of the frustration that healthcare workers like nurses and doctors feel towards administration. There's often a disconnect between hospital administration and workers. That definitely exists and it's a big part of the problem now. So, you know, I think that's a topic that we'll dig into a lot deeper when we're talking about the ways in which the system is currently under stress and which is causing or may cause a collapse of the healthcare system in the future. Yeah, I feel like there's just so much to be said here, and we've really only scratched the surface. But I think this does lay a really good foundation so that as, as we start talking about staffing shortages and supply chain issues in the medical industry and other aspects of the system that are indicating we've got troubling times ahead, I think recognizing all of the problems that we talked about here and how the system is built gives some really good context for that. Yeah, I look forward to that conversation next week. I think that one's going to be fascinating. And I'm excited to hopefully in future episodes beyond that, be able to dig down even deeper into more specific areas of the healthcare system. Appreciate our listeners for sticking with us, for being here today. If you've enjoyed the episode, as always, please make sure that you've left us a review, shared with your friends, spread the word on social media. But really, we're so grateful for your support for always being here. And we look forward to next week's episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.